Hello and welcome back to High Haven on WNHH Radio. This is your program about everything Jewish in our community. I'm your host, Paul Bass. And everything Jewish in our community is coming down to Pesach, the annual festival of Passover, with the countdown to Friday night for cleaning our houses of chametz and for our first Seder. The one event that, no matter how religious or not religious you are as a Jew, Seder is the one event you probably take place in no matter what, no matter what you believe, and the thing you remember your whole life. Our guest today knows a lot about the subject, and not just about Passover Seders, but about Exodus in the modern world. For instance, the Exodus of Soviet Jews like himself at the end of the last century to our community. Say, welcome back to High Haven, to Michael Farben, the guitar-playing rabbi of Temper Emmanuel. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rabbi Farben. Thank you for having me back. Great. I'm going to ask you to get the mic a tiny bit closer to you, but you're sounding good. All right. Good. And so you don't look like a rabbi right before Passover. Usually, not only are people freaking out, getting every last crumb out of the house or believing they are, and getting all their pots and pans ready and all their special foods and their other stuff put away. But the rabbi is in great demand, right? Everyone's inundating you with questions. Hey, rabbi, and I'm going to inundate you with one because I can't resist the temptation. Can I eat tofu on, on uh, Pesach? Do, do I need the kosher for Passover uh, uh, designation on a product if I buy it before Pesach and it has no wheat in it? So uh, what's your life like in the lead up? You know, I'm uh, uh, I'm learning to be better at projecting calm on the outside. I think that's the biggest and, message, and, and keeping yeah. <laughs> keeping the uh, the craziness of preparation and the excitement of preparation on the inside. Uh, I would also say, don't ask my wife right now because she's probably feeling even more stressed um, than than I um, that I care to show. It is an exciting, um, but also a demanding festival um, in terms of what it is that we do. I think. As as he, as any rabbi that uh, I suspect you will ask, um, while we talk a lot about the products, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you clean, how, and all of the technical issues, and of course the answers to all of your questions is, as always, it depends whom you ask. Um, but there are certain underlying uh, underlying basic principles. You don't eat bread uh, of what <laughs> you, you do not eat bread. You do not eat the leaven, uh, and of course the. Part of a complicated question is, do you uh, come from a Sephardi background, from the the Spanish, Portuguese, and then Oriental communities, or do you come from the Ashkenazi world, Eastern from Europe. the Eastern and Central Europe? And of course, the difference in how you observe Passover is the most dramatic between those two communities. Uh, but it's also quite remarkable to talk about 21st century, when we have Jews living uh, in such close proximity, both Sephardi and Ashkenazi, when we have... Uh, Israel and the state of Israel and all the Jews right, from so all these lands. Whole, the whole big thing comes down to you have uh, all these products that tell you they're kosher Passover that you don't find here because we have so many Ashkenazi Jews. Correct. If you go to Israel, mm. you have tofu, which is made of soybeans. You have rice products that do. Correct. And, um, and the remarkable... My understanding that's not based on law, mm. though. That's just tradition. My fathers that, and grandfathers were in Eastern Europe, and they were confused if ground-up beans mm. looked like... Um, looked like bread. So the Ashkenazi rabbis uh, in the Middle Ages were um, became increasingly more restrictive in terms of what can and cannot be used on Passover, as you rightly point out. Not because it wasn't uh, somehow kosher, because how can it be kosher for one part of the Jewish people and not kosher for the others? The question was, can you confuse the flour... Uh, that is made out of something that is chickpea. not grain, um, that flour out of chickpea, for example, uh, or other pulses, 
can you confuse it by accident with flour that's made out of uh, grain? And can you therefore invalidate your Passover observance by using it? And so the Ashkenazi rabbis, um, uh, the, this was not all rabbis, these were poskim, these were people who were in charge of decisions. They have grown increasingly um, concerned and careful and have legislated uh, more and more deeper and deeper into, you know what, just to be on the safe side, Let's remove all of that. Let's not have it. Um, plus, some of the things, for example, uh, the modern uh, magic product, the quinoa, uh, that, right. that everybody is talking it's about. Most popular is right. Uh, most popular Passover grain. Uh, it, it is a. It is a. It is a, a seed. Grain. It's not a grain. It's a seed. However, when it is uh, transported and when it is stored. Um, they use uh, layers of buckwheat, for example, to cover it so that it absorbs Which moisture. Again, Bob, and Akasha, though, again, there's nothing. Grain, there's not, not wheat. Correct. There's nothing but wrong with it. Some people say, "Well, gee, we might get confused because it's called buckwheat." I consider that like fundamentalism. Uh, so, <laughs> well, you know what? So, so the, here's the interesting thing that has been happening over the years. I think. Um, in any Jewish conversation, of course, you can get granular, uh, if you pardon my pun, and uh, and really go into details of uh, of what you do and do not eat, um, down to that very uh, very detail. But there is also a bigger question, and I think that the bigger question we ask, you can also walk away and say, ah, who cares? You know, uh, you'll have a little matzah around Pesach, and you're done. But I think that if this is a if this is a part of of buying into the life of your community and exploring. And the keeping religious tradition cannot, alive and can, finding why did your ancestors do this and why does it persist? So I, my life will find hmm. meaning in following what the people who led up to me over centuries did. Uh, we all we all do that. Um, the question that rabbis have addressed uh, in the past is, what do you do if um, if you marry uh, if you're a, a, a cross marriage between yeah, a Sephardi, Sephardi and Ashkenazi Jew? And so the traditional answer is, well, you follow whatever the the, the husband's uh, Can I get tradition a third is. Answer because we wrestle with this. My synagogue is conservative, right? And we do believe in father's tradition and the law. The law says there are five grains you can't eat, like the spelt and the wheat and barley, right? And and what are the other two? Uh, rye and um, I'm sure that I'm You're forgetting that. <laughs> and that, in fact, you can follow the law, which is important to us because we're part of a tradition and we find the meaning in how we live and following the ways that people came before us figured out about a good way to live. And 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 in celebrating the Festival of Freedom with... with um, Passover, the Jews coming out of Egypt and God liberating us from slavery as a kind of spring cleaning. We clean our houses, we clean our souls, we start fresh. That one can argue, and many of us do, that then people then turn this into an unhappy holiday by trying to be so strict beyond what the law says because you're not sure you're doing good enough and that you're not sure you're being Jewish enough. And then, in fact, it's not true that you're being more religious or more faithful to tradition by not having buckwheat, which isn't wheat, by not having um, quinoa, because it's stored in buckwheat, by not having tofu, because unlike in Israel here, they don't get a hexure, and that you're not a slave to these companies that have markups on products that have kosher for Passover symbols on them, and they give you half as much food in a package and co- charge you twice as much because they have you over barrel, when in fact, you can be freed for being over that barrel. So for me, I, we had a pivot in our house about 10, five, 10 years ago, and we really studied this and realized that we can be true to this tradition without making an unhappy holiday, but a liberating holiday. And that you can't have to, because I'm vegan, my house is vegetarian, so we can't eat meat and brisket and stuff like that. We can eat all sorts of great foods and celebrate vegetables in spring, which is a spring holiday, and clean our houses and not eat bread and still love the holiday and not be sort of uptight about what some kind of strict fundamentalist sect 
and trying to pressure people to pay protection it, racket prices is telling you to do so so you're you're raising thank you this was a a really thoughtful <laughs> way to describe this and you're talking to a re- and, and you're talking to a reform rabbi here so i um i very much wholeheartedly um agree and support everything that you said i'm not a vegetarian well, right, also uh, reform so, doesn't agree with everything and again it doesn't make them less hmm. strict or less religious co- any correct. sect it's a different theory and co- how you correct. interpret a tradition <laughs> correct so so i think that you're raising a number of questions though um and so i'm going to try and see if i can uh, and I, I can address all of them on the one level you are asking the question of how does our strictness or our desire to be very specific in observing the holiday how does that contribute to the concept of joy as opposed to and liberation making us miserable and what's it mean to be jewish Correct. And so there are plenty of Jews out there who, uh, in fact, while we groan and moan about all the cleaning, we find um, almost a spiritual e- enlightenment in this, in this moment of saying, we actually, cl- and while you clean the house, maybe, maybe it occurs to you, what is it that you're cleaning it from? You know, right. the idea of chametz. Uh, is, Which is, is, un, is not kosher for Passover it, food, right? The 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 uh, it's the leaven food. Chametz, you know, the ingredients for chametz are exactly the same, almost exactly the same as the ingredients for matzah. What are the main ingredients? Is the flour and water. The only difference is the yeast and whether and how you handle this. Do you allow it to rise or do you keep it? So so the the, the question is, what's the stuff that makes makes it grow inside of us? What is our spiritual chametz? What what the ingredients are the same. It's the same us. Uh, just by cleaning your house and changing oh, what you eat. Transform. And uh, you don't transform yourself unless you actually ask yourselves questions about yourself. What do you stand for? The Seder is such an incredible opportunity Seder, to not just to not just uh, yeah. ask questions of where we come from, what did our ancestors struggle with, but also what are the modern uh, realities? What are the modern plagues? Um, nowadays, um, almost every every organization out there has been sending out this now with email. It's so much easier. People create these supplements for for the Haggadah, saying, "Hey, you want to talk about hunger?" You want to talk about all who are hungry, let them come and eat, which is the central one of the central passages of, this, of the Haggadah. You know what? Bring this to your table. Talk about hunger and every, in and the United you States. Love, you're great growing up at, at Seder's. We're talking about how our two different world. I remember a few years ago during the Arab Spring, that was the subject of our Seder. Right. Now, you're going the tradition of what you're supposed to be in the book, and you talk about what it means now. And you're talking also about spiritual transformation, and today, how do you stop being a slave to whatever oppresses you? So obviously a big part of our tradition is satyrs where we have them with non-Jews as well and fit into their tradition. And Martin Luther King always spoke about how the Exodus story was his model for the civil rights movement he was leading because it took 40 years to wander in the desert because even though it was only like, what, a a three-month walk or something to get from uh, Egypt to the Promised Land, and that's because Jews weren't ready. When you've been a slave, you're not always ready just to walk into freedom. You have to liberate yourself from the mindset and the way you were living. And and then King talked a lot about that. But can I ruin that beautiful thought by asking you another one of those anal is it Jewish enough questions? Let, oh, let, yeah, let me let me, let me let me try and go back because I I think that um, uh, for people for people listening, I want people to understand. So one of the things that has been happening 
uh, over the last few years is that both the reform and now um, part of conservative movement have come out with saying, you know, some, for slightly different reasons, because they are different movements, they come from a different way of processing the thought, but both movements have essentially come out and say, you know something, if it is good enough for one part of the Jewish people, it should really be good enough for all of us. I'm talking about Kitniyot, and I'm talking about... So so I I have to... This is admitting it on, on, on the air. Two years ago, we had this conversation in our family, and we said, we know that we come from from Ashkenazi background, and so we've always, uh, or the years that we have been observing, uh, Passover, we've hinted to the fact that I grew up in the in the Soviet Union, and so I did not grow up with Passover observance, certainly not to anywhere near the degree um, yeah. that, that I do now. And so we followed with the Ashkenazi um, concept, and we've decided, you know something, if this is good enough for the Jewish people um, across the world, why would we? What we would make ourselves so miserable? It's still, you know, Passover is still full of restrictions, and, and, and I find a lot of meaning in that. And nothing to do with the law. Uh, and I, you yeah. know, traveling on Passover and and eating, um, it's, it's complicated. Um, but at the same time, our um, let me tell you this. Clearing out my um, uh, my um, storage room with the closet with all the foods has become three times as easy because I don't have to remove all of the, <laughs> those right. things with pulses. Um, and it's been, uh, I would say, that's been quite liberating. And you're right about the conservative movement because we're on the orthodox side of conservative, and I've noticed almost everyone in my community moving toward eating the kidney out. For me, it wasn't a problem because even though I grew up conservative, we were totally non-observant, so we ate bacon. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so we didn't have a tradition that, you know, even though I live in a completely kosher home and we're observant, you know, there was no reason. And some called it a minchak stoop, a stupid tradition. Rabbis called that whole idea about kidney. Like <laughs> I have not heard stoop. that one. Okay. That rabbi always talks about that. But we're talking to Michael Farman, who's a, a great inspirational figure in our community, the rabbi of Temple Beth Manuel. And um, I'm sorry, Temple Manuel. Excuse me about that. That's okay. And uh, we're talking about Passover and how we're going to feel getting ready for the spiritual season of liberation so let me just ruin it for one quick question okay because every year there's something new we stress about about the rules of how we're going to comply with passover for years it was quinoa and i think that argument's over so what it's wrapped in buckwheat that's not wheat <laughs> i know that people right. actually went to peru to watch them in the highlands harvesting it to make yes sure they have closer. yes they have it's a little nutty but uh that's <laughs> a nutty flavor the question for me this year right rabbi farman is kombucha so my kids and i have started brewing kombucha and that's made from um, black tea or green tea and sugar and um, a kind of medium that has called SCOBY. It's an acronym that includes yeast, but vegetable yeast. It's not from the grain of like bread. And um, you brew it in your house. So I have all these jars in my house. They look like really fun science experiments, like brains growing, you know, in the jars. And then every two weeks, you, you then distill them and put them in the fridge with ginger or something. So all our ingredients are kosher, made in a kosher kitchen our kitchen, never touched anything that might have had bread in it, right. no implements that did, right? So um, we're wondering if we, this year I have like my 14 bottles in the fridge and then on my table I have another huge bunch of vats with the next batch. If I had to throw that all out, the scobies would all die and I couldn't make them again. So I asked my rabbi and he didn't know and I looked it up online and all the debate online among even the Orthodox rabbis is about when you buy commercially produced kombucha, so they have the breakdown that the conservative reform would say, as long as all the ingredients do not have chametz, if you buy it beforehand with a regular hexa, you're fine because it'll have such a minuscule amount of accidental right. stray chametz. It won't be, and the Orthodox say, no, you have to pay off the the, uh, the mob. But 
I think there's another question because no one was dealing with it if you make it yourself. So our rabbi said he didn't know the answer, which I love about our rabbi. You know, he'll research it, but he says sometimes it's not the answer. And he said, if you're not sure, just cover it and have it be something you're not owning on Passover, which is fine right. with me. Right. But I'm actually thinking maybe it's okay to drink. Do you have any thoughts on the great kombucha <laughs> so question? So I, um, I, wow, what a question. So first of all, I know so little about kombucha uh, that, it's good stuff. Uh, a, yeah. well, uh, you know, some people are, swear by it, but it is acquired taste <laughs> indeed. And it's uh, you know in the popular culture, it is something that uh, that is usually referred to with some kind of there's some kind of a humor. So right, like uh, kale, yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, probably even more so than kale. So, so the answer it's is become a big brother. Kale's the, the, become a big. Uh, the question is yeast, uh, obviously, and um, and the question is how do you address that? And I would say, look. Uh, Clearly, I don't know. I haven't. You didn't tell me ahead of time, so I That's did right, not I got research. A few surprises and, on the rabbit, and you know something. Uh, kombucha is not my area of expertise. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, <laughs> that Rabbi Tilson did not uh, did not give you a, an immediate answer to that. Um, so the what I would say is. The, what the question I would hear from what you're asking is, can you actually use it and drink it during Passover or not? And I think that really com- boils down to uh, to the question of yeast and how it is fermented. You know, in the in the old days when people did not just go to the store and have everything available and just buy it for Passover, right? They would take some raisins and they would take some sugar and they would take some whatever else it is and they would let it ferment and sit there and rise and become this Pesach little wine, whatever. It, so uh, I, I remember references to uh, to this in, in in the old days. I did not understand why on earth the, these old uh, people would be, would be making that kind of stuff when when you can get wine. Now, uh, eventually, I realized that the question was: Is it kosher for Pesach uh, or not? Because you cannot control uh, commercially produced wine. But so and so, that extra layer with wine, which I consider somewhat maybe possibly racist, where they feel like did they have a Jew watch it? the grape, the way that other products don't have to be watched. Um, Sideline. Sure. Although, you know, something I Maybe don't know. Protection I, I think, I think when you, when you talk about this from a, um, from a halakhic perspective, this is where I get to bring this to, to the way I grew up. I grew up in the, in the Soviet reality. I'm totally secular. Um, um, not, necessarily even by choice. Uh, in fact, I don't know some of the answers. You know, when I started teaching Hebrew schools, I realized that I don't know whether as a, as a kid I would have liked That's coming to Hebrew school. That's my mark of the truest, best oh. rabbi who doesn't have all the answers, uh, I, <laughs> but has a lot. I of. would not have known. I, you know, I don't know because that was not something that was available to me. It was part of my experience. Um, I don't know if my family would have been fully observant, um, uh, partially observant, interested in this stuff, or fully rebellious against it. Um, Jews have had a whole variety of uh, of expression. Um, one of my uh, w- one of the people whom uh, I worked with um, a number of years ago was Chuck Hoffman, who was uh, who was an American sociologist, um, made Aliyah, lived in Israel, wrote uh, quite a number of books about American Jewry. And uh, at the time I met him, he was working for the Joint Distribution Committee, and he was country director for Ukraine. I worked for him. Allah Shalom. Unfortunately, Chuck passed away quite young. And so one of the, the remarkable things that he taught me uh, was that at the end of the 20th century, you could not really imagine a more different experience, Jewishly speaking, for American Jews and Soviet Jews. Right? You cannot, the story of a hundred years of the 20th century could not have been more dramatically different. It doesn't mean that one is all good and one is all bad, but they were so dramatically different. And yet, 
at the end of the 20th century with numbers that were known then. I think we, we, we know better statistics now or deeper statistics. The rates of intermarriage were almost identical between the American oh, jury really? and, the, and the Russian jury. And, and that was a shocking discovery. That is shocking. You know, we, we talked about the fact, I, I remarked, I remember remarking to him how he, he had this remarkable feeling um, of really understanding these post-Soviet Jews that he was talking to which many people from the outside really did not. He had the respect for, for the older generation. And I, I asked him how he, like, where did it come from? And he said, look, I see exactly the same. My my parents, my uncles, they all went into professions. They ended up architects, and some went into the military, and some did this. And that's exactly what happened uh, here. It's just that um, the realities within which people were embracing those professions meant that uh, American Jews did pretty well for themselves and Russian Jews ended up, like most of the, the Soviet population, uh, fairly poor and with restricted abilities. But, but he observed that communities and the desire to learn worked in a very comparable way. So I don't know if my family would have embraced one or the other or something in the middle. I grew up in the fully Soviet reality. Later on, when I was in rabbinical school, I started looking back and realizing that, in fact, things that I have assumed that I had access to nothing, it wasn't quite nothing. Every spring, we would go to my grandmother's house for, uh, for a Passover meal, and there would be matzah, which had to be, uh, I mean, getting matzah was a whole ordeal. Where in the Soviet Union was this again? I grew up in Vitebsk, in Belarus. Um, in Belarus. In Belarus. So, Mark Chagall comes from, from Vitebsk, so the, there's a lot of... Have you read what, the Dara Horn book about that? Uh, yes. That's, oh, that's my goodness. Good. What that's a really world good. to come. Yeah. Uh, what a wonderful... I love that uh, book. W- wonderful book. Although, I think her, her approach uh, is getting a little played out in some later notes. Uh, so, uh, so um, the experience was showing up, sitting at the table, having matzah, having gefilte fish, having matzah ball soup, uh, all of these little things. I have a suspicion bread was also on the table because I don't <laughs> think that there was a concept of matzah replacing bread. You see, I think, the, and of course there was no Seder. Of course there was, there was no, no mention. No, because there was no Haggadah. There was no story of Exodus. There was none of that. So I suspect my grandmothers, my grandfathers were both killed during the war. My uncle was killed during the war in the Soviet army. So the Second World War. So, so there were no men who carried some of that. But uh, my grandmothers grew up in uh, having having enough of the traditional upbringing to know this stuff. But for whatever reason, whether it was most likely, it was pretty dangerous and 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 not really legal to do that. So the celebration of what Passover was about was completely gone. I had no idea. My first seder I attended when I was sixteen years old, what almost year? sixteen, nineteen ninety. Um, and it was what the, a year that was. And two Americans, Soviet Union is still standing. Two, for a uh, few more two um, volunteers um, coming, uh, Canadians living in Israel, coming through the Joint Distribution Committee, bringing food and running two seders in Vitebsk. And you went. Um, and I was one of the lucky people who got a call and said, "You want one place? Not even for my family." So was that the for first me. year you didn't go to your grandmother's? Um, that was my grandmother died a year before that. So, oh my um, goodness. so and that what was, was her name. Um, uh, her name was Golda. Uh, her name was Golda. Genya. So you had gone to Golda's every year. <laughs> every Grandma year, died. You but, weren't but there was, seder, but but there was no seder. So, so what I'm trying to say is, look, the the tradition of why and what we do was was almost entirely gone. But the fact that you do something that right. has remained. Yes. You, my grandmother's buried in the Jewish cemetery. Now that funeral was absolutely the same 
as any Russian burial. You, you didn't say Kaddish? A, a, who knew what was Kaddish? I never knew there was Kaddish. Uh, nobody really around me. Although, uh, actually, some of the older, this I, I was younger, but apparently one of the one of the um, my mother's uh, aunts kept a kosher home and and was observant. So when her husband died, there was Kaddish. But it was so such anyway, an so, alien so thing. Farden, Somebody said it, but my farm, and I'm so interested in the seder. So 1990, gold has died. Your only connection to Judaism, is fair to say, was going to the Seder that might have even had bread there and no Haggadah. No, no. It has nothing. Um, th- but so, yet so it was. There is no connection to Judaism. That's but, my but point. But there was. But you look back the at connection, the connection. The connection is, uh, I, I'm Jewish. I'm reminded of that every minute of my life. You want to take a, li- a book out of a library as an eight-year-old, you have to put your name, last name, and your nationality, your ethnicity. You have to say you're Jewish. Your, your school registration, the teachers, when they so call So tell it, me about the Seder. Everywhere you went to the one in Vitebsk, right? I went to the one in Vitebsk. I, I showed like? up to the Seder with four cups uh, of wine and everything else, and it completely—it was overwhelming. It was unbelievable experience. Um, but I had no idea about any of that. And of course, what do you remember about that Seder? What do I remember like, about the Seder? It? Say it again. Where was it? It was at a cafeteria of the um uh, of the pedagogical university um it was just rented rented room and um, how many people 70 so what do you remember most about it um look this was 1990 was your first halakhic one it was everything was different the tastes were different the matzah the matzah tasted different was it Shmuramata? There was no, no, no. It was just um, a regular, but it wasn't. Um, but it was the matzah that they sent from from Israel in in packaged boxes. It wasn't something that was baked uh, locally, and it and it felt and it tasted different. And you said the but four questions, and you we said, said and whatever. That, you know, I don't remember too much. I remember the the the, the wine and um, so. Michael, and the is it question. fair to say that it started you on your path to becoming a rabbi? Was um, that just too neat for the movie version? You know, I it's a good question. Um uh, for sure. Uh, for sure. Although uh I don't think that if anybody at that point and at many other later points when if somebody would have told me that I was going to become a rabbi, I my reaction would have been only one reaction. But it was your first I would have step on a path to Jewish religious observance uh, in your life. It was most certainly a first Jewish religious um observance that was introduced to me as a religious observance. Now, Look, as, a, as a child, I, I, I remember, uh, I've been talking about this uh, recently. As a child, I remember discovering this lamp um, that that sat on a window seal uh, in my parents' bedroom. Uh, it was one of those, uh, after Gagarin went to, to space, there were these this commemorative lamps with which looked like a little spa- uh, space rocket at the top of a glass. And it sat there and was never plugged in. And one day I walked into the bedroom and I saw it plugged in and it was glowing with this pale reddish light. And it was on during the day. You don't keep lights on during the day. I was like, what is this? And the answer is, it was a yard site candle, right? They didn't have candles. But for yard site, I don't believe my mother knew to light it the night before, but she knew to light it for the day. And she didn't keep the Hebrew date of it. But for the days of the deceased relatives that she mm. knew, and certainly I, I suspect my, my, my maternal grandmother died when I was eight, and so probably after that uh, is, so is when I noticed it. So, so the, the religious observances, you know, do we identify them as religious, or is that something that, that we observe that happens around us? 
That's a big question. It is. 1990, the Soviet Union was crumbling. When did Belarus stop being uh, Soviet? <laughs> Probably <laughs> never. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, Belarus feels uh, from, from outside you, that it's leave? still a Soviet. I, uh, good question. I went to study in Moscow in 93, um, and I went to rabbinical school in London in 96. So um, my family left Vitebsk in 97 and came over to the United States. Is so. it fair to say the story of the Exodus dovetails with the story of your and other Soviet Jews leaving the Soviet Union and pursuing Jewish lives in free societies? Uh, you know something. I know the movie version. Uh, it, it, it is a it is a very neat version, and um, and in the early nineties we were all um, we were all faced with that choice, and it was a very neat and and people liked hearing this and encouraged. And I have observed um, both um, the the former Soviet Jews embracing that narrative and saying, "Here's our exodus." And also saying, hang on a second, don't paint this as uh, as the slavery that we are all suddenly liberated to. Because freedom, as we know, is not all that um, uh, all that exciting sometimes. There is a lot of hardship with freedom as well. You know, the, the Jews that left Egypt um, were complaining about the food that they had in Egypt. And a lot and, of people uh, in the world uh, now, including the U.S., are voting <laughs> for anti-democratic governments in Democratic elections. Mm. Well, that's that. So is your story, do you feel mm. every year at Passover at the Seder, A, do you think about that 1990 Seder, and B, do you could do you think about your being part of an exodus of Soviet Jewry or not? I always think about that Seder. Sometimes at the Seder itself, and sometimes just at other times. And Michael and Ruth Rosenbluth are... Uh, uh, these wonderful people, and uh, occasionally when I'm in Israel, I get to talk to them on the phone, uh, and uh, and remember that remarkable feeling of being totally overwhelmed by the experience. And I hope that uh, that they get a chuckle out of the fact that I became a rabbi, um, having first encountered it uh, there with them. What about the Soviet exodus? Part of the story? Uh, Do you think I, about that? Absolutely. You know, I have a Haggadah that when I when I served as a as a rabbi in St. Petersburg for three years, uh, together with my colleagues, we edited a Haggadah uh, that is used by the Reform congregations all across the former Soviet Union uh, with better translation and transliteration and things like that. And one of the artists, this young woman in Moscow, uh, was invited to draw, and she drew all these pictures for the Haggadah. Uh, and one of the pictures in it is so remarkable. Every Pesach, I stop, because I, I do a Seder at home in, in Russian, combination of Russian and Hebrew. And for my family and some uh, and friends uh, that, that are invited... I always point to this incredible picture where she superimposed the crowd uh, of Exodus, which looks very much like the Soviet Jews of the late 80s mm. and early 90s, with that five-story Khrushchev uh, apartment building behind them. Mm. And I, it, is, it is absolutely... Now, you can argue about the experiences of Soviet Jews, and was it all as terrible, or was it all good, and what, what are the things, what were the freedoms taken away, and there was a quote, I'm not going to remember it offhand, um, coming from, uh, from Martin Luther King Jr., um, that, was, that he said about the Soviet Jews, and he was talking about the fact that it's not just the restriction of freedom, but it, restrictions of religious freedom, what does it do to you as a people, and what does it take away? It's a very powerful, I saw this uh, a couple of months ago, such a powerful that Seder, quote. What did you think when they said next year in Jerusalem at the end? Uh, I, I thought maybe one day I will see Jerusalem 
and you did. And I did. Rabbi Michael Farman, I could talk to you all day, especially about Passover. I'm so disappointed we ran out of time. I guess it happens. You are one interesting fellow. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for I'm having me. Haq to you and to your listeners. Haq as well. So kombucha, yes or no? Uh, no idea. All right. Probably no for me, but that's mostly because I'm not sure what to do with kombucha. Okay. My favorite, <laughs> cover it. My favorite if you're not sure, just cover it. All right. And we did cover it today. Thank you for joining us on High Haven with Rabbi Michael Farman of Temple Emmanuel, one of our great congregations in our area. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This Pesach, may we all be blessed with peace. May we blessed, be blessed with well-being. And may we be blessed with love. Love.